Something that I think a lot of ski areas neglect is that so much of our guests day is not just skiing. I mean, that's why they're there, but they spend almost as much time in your parking lots, in your lodges, on your lifts. And to be truly successful, we need to focus on the entire experience. Projects like the Kank 8 are the evolution here. To ski into that building and to see the screen and to be in those heated seats, it's not just a means to get you up the mountain. It's adding to your day as a whole. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. There are not many mountains in the country that are rolling like Loon Mountain is right now. We'll go deep on that. But before I give you that conversation, I am going to ask you to give me one thing. Please roll over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. I like the pod. It's a lot of fun. But the truth is, this is only a small part of the storm. The heart of this whole operation is the Storm Skiing Newsletter, which gives you at least 100 articles exploring the world of U.S. lift-served skiing all year round. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. As ski magazines fade, there is still a source for actual ski journalism at stormskiing.com. You can also follow the storm on Twitter, and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Okay, guess what's coming up? Snowbound Expo. After two years dormant, the former Boston Ski Show has been purchased by Raccoon Events and renamed Snowbound Expo. The show will offer a huge speaker lineup that includes Cody Miller, Conrad Anker, Dan Egan, Basu Sojitra, Danny Reyes Acosta, Lindsey Fixmer, and more. You will also find sales on the latest gear, apparel, and resort passes. And you can try a dry ski slope and kick back with friends at the Opry Ski Mountain Bar. The show is November 18th to 20 at Boston Heinz Convention Center. Tickets are normally $15 per day, but Snowbound Expo is offering Storm listeners free tickets for the entire weekend. To claim your tickets, visit snowboundexpo.com and use code STORM at checkout. I will be there on Friday doing a live podcast with JP General Manager Steve Wright, and I hope to meet you in person. All right, you know what I'm going to hit you with now, Mountain Gazette. But no matter how hard I hammer you with this, it's not going to whack you on the head as hard as Mountain Gazette when this work of art drops on your doorstep. Issue 198 worked its way to me recently, and holy bleeping crap. First, the cover. Seth Morrison, Crushing Pow, captured by photographer Scott Markowitz. That shot tags an enormous spread of one of the greatest skiers of all time. And then, did you know that there are 22 ski areas in Greece? Greece. There are some amazing pics to prove it. Then, writer and snowboarder Dave Zook gives us a deep meditation on what it means to compete in and ultimately retire from the competitive free ride circuit. And then the photo profile of Trevor Kinnison, who is living an inspirational life in a sit ski after a spinal cord injury is just absolutely unforgettable. This thing takes some left turns too. Mountain Gazette 198 explores nudist lifestyle, Saudi Arabia, and the tragic end to the life of cyclist Mariah Wilson. But I can only say so much. 
My man Mike Rogie, who had the vision to bring Mountain Gazette back from the dead two years ago, laid the whole thing out pretty bluntly in the latest issue when he said, quote, a firm belief developed for me recently. Folks need to see Mountain Gazette in real life. Then, and only then, do they get it. Look, that's real. This thing is incredible. It is the best outdoor print mag going, and you can only get it by subscribing at mountaingazette.com. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 104, Brian Norton, President and General Manager of Loon Mountain, New Hampshire. When Loon dropped the Kank 8 news on us back in 2019, it stunned New England skiers. It's one thing to put one of these eight-pack chairlifts at Big Sky, one of the largest ski areas in North America. It was another thing entirely to commit to dropping a Doppelmeyer D-Line eight-pack at Loon Mountain, which isn't even the largest ski area in New Hampshire. It was a huge investment by Boyne Resorts, which owns both Loon and Big Sky, but it turns out that was just the first move at their incredibly busy New Hampshire resort. When Loon recently dropped a new lift and 30-acre South Peak terrain expansion on us for 2023, it marked three huge projects in three years for the popular ski area sitting off Interstate 93, just two hours north of Boston. The spectacular Kank 8 debuted in 2021. A completely rebuilt Kank Quad will debut at Seven Brothers this year. And an expansion that would finally connect the massive escape route parking lots to the rest of the resort with a chairlift is coming next year. It's all part of Loon's Flight Path 2030 plan, a comprehensive long-term blueprint that has the stated goal to develop, quote, the most technologically advanced lift network in the East to increase uphill speed and achieve ultimate comfort, end quote. Loon announced that plan less than three years ago, and they're moving fast to make this thing real. We will get into how far along they are and what's driving this commitment today. Let's go. My guest today is the president and general manager of Loon Mountain, New Hampshire. Loon Mountain features 61 trails served by 11 lifts on a 2,100-foot vertical drop. He has worked at Loon for 21 years, most recently as vice president of operations for Loon, and prior to that, as director of mountain sports development for Boyne Resorts. Brian Norton is my guest. Brian, welcome to the storm. I am always fired up to talk about Loon Mountain. How are you doing today? It's a wonderful day in New England. I wish it was a little bit colder, but uh, I'm happy to be here. Happy to catch up with you. So we are recording this on November 1st. And as you mentioned, the calendar seems to think that it's still September. How are preparations going for the winter season? Oh, blessing and a curse right now. I mean, we've, we've got a lot going on with the, the typical getting ready, the rush to get ready for winter, bringing people on board, training, all those sorts of things. Um, but the warm weather is, is definitely slowing some of, the, some of the excitement on the snowmaking front a little bit, but also at the same time, giving us an opportunity to really, you know, <laughs> get the extra d- hours and days into some of these construction projects that we have. We have ongoing. I mean, as you know, we've got lift construction going on, a major investment in snowmaking, some facility upgrades at our children's center, and just, you know, all the other fixings along the way here that we're trying to get ready for winter. So a lot going on. 
Yeah, I mean, the pace of change at Loon Mountain is just incredible, and I want to get into all that today. First, though, do you have an opening day? I, I've noticed that Loon, as with Sunday River and Sugarloaf, kind of has this flexible opening and closing date where you'll push the season as long as you can, and, and you don't have some of the advantages that those mountains do to quite stretch the season the way they do. But how do you approach the opening date at Loon? Do you, are, are you looking at a set date this year because of all the things you have going on? Or are you letting Mother Nature tell you when it's time to open? So a couple things. One, we're not, um, we being part of a larger company and being part of a three mountain pass, we don't need to chase the first day in New England like uh, Sunday River would or like Killington would. So for us, it's all about uh, opening when we have quality snow conditions. You know, that's been a change we've made in the last few years and something I see us kind of sticking to is that, we're going to let Mother Nature tell us uh, we, we have all the investments and infrastructure to be there as soon as we can. But there's really no point in opening if the experience isn't up to par. Right. So when when Mother Nature allows us and we don't need a big window, but when we get that window, we'll open a, a typical year. You know, kind of what we would aim for a season is is November 15th to April 15th, um, you know, calendar dependent this year. You know, the 15th is, I think, like a Tuesday. That just wouldn't make sense. We'd probably open on the 17th. Um, and then I think actually the 15th is a Sunday this year. So that's that's kind of what we're keyed in on. But again, we're not um, we're not committed to that date because we want the experience to be there. and We want the snow conditions to be there. And, you know, that's somewhat out of our control. So what is your goal for opening day, Brian? What What is your footprint? Do you because you're not like Killington where you'll open with that one run way up the mountain or Sunday river does the same. What's your sort of minimum viable footprint to crack that thing open? Well, that's a good question. The last few years um, we've prided ourselves on every year, just having like an extra acre or two. And that's, it's just somewhat a coincidence. It's not like we have this, we want to be at 60 acres or 45 acres or X number of green and blue and black terrain. It's, it's really dictated by what the weather allows us to get to before then, you know, if we're stuck making snow up top or if we have an opportunity to make snow at the bottom. Um, I, I'd say some of the key factors are making sure that we can ski top to bottom. We don't want to, um, you know, it would take a pretty extreme circumstance uh, to to force ourselves into downloading. We want to be able to ski top to bottom. And, and in an ideal world, we're going to ski more than one trail top to bottom. Very often that means multiple trails up top. Uh, just longer windows of snowmaking up there. Um, but if we can get one or, or two trails top to bottom, a uh, small terrain park uh, in the mix, we're we're pretty happy. And I think our guests are as well. When you say top to bottom, Brian, do you mean top to bottom on the gondola? Yeah, that's, that's pretty typical. Although, um, you know, North Peak being the highest elevation, it's sunsets almost always the first trail we make snow on just because it's higher up the mountain, highest elevation. And depending on, you know, what we anticipate for skier volume, we might open the gondola and North Peak or the gondola and, and East Basin uh, in any given year and really ski that kind of second pod over on North Peak if we had an opportunity to make a bunch of snow over there early season. Is there a scenario now that you're upgrading Seven Brothers? And again, we'll get into that upgrade. Is there a scenario where you just open Seven Brothers if if you want to just get a couple quick trails open and not necessarily have to blow snow top to bottom? Um, yeah, I, I suppose. I think from a from a weather perspective, I don't know that 
I don't know that we'd be granted the opportunity to make that much snow down bottom and not have the snow up top that we would just open top to bottom. What I will say is, and I tell people this story all the time, my first, uh, my first day in my last role as vice president of operations, I was all geared up. I was ready to get out on the mountain opening day. The gondola was ready to go. And, and then the wind shut us down, you know, mother nature had her way and, and uh, we had to scramble to get seven brothers. So it, it wouldn't be totally unique to open seven brothers on opening day, but uh, that's certainly not our goal. What about your big new, big new eight pack, the Kank eight? Have you thought about now that you have this, I don't want to call it a tourist attraction, but just this real true alpha lift. I know when I talked to Jay Scambio on the podcast about three years ago, he said you always open the gondola side first. Have you talked about opening the governor's lodge side first, just because you have that big, impressive lift over there? I think you're like reading our mind here. Um, (laughs) There's a, there's a good chance that that might happen this year. Um, And I've never, it's great that you called it an alpha lift. That's a, that's a wonderful name (laughs) for it. Um, Yeah. I think, you know, we, we hate, and maybe I'll refer to this in other times or you'll get this, but I, I hate the the thought or the theory that we, you know, you, you should do something that way because you've always done it that way. And there may be a great reason to do it, but that's not it. And uh, opening the governor's lodge first, opening with that, you know, that beautiful lift over there and that capacity is is something on our radar. And, and you might see it happen this year, depending on how the weather shakes out. Well, I have to commend you on that mentality, Brian, because you're new to this role, but but not new to Loon. So you definitely have been there to see how it's done. And sometimes it's hard to get out of our habits, right? So so let's go back and, and just look at your time at Loon. 21 years. How did you get that first job? And what was that job? So I, I went to Plymouth State College, as a lot of people in the area do. Um, you know, Jay did the same thing. And, and I kind of stuck around after that. Um, I had a roommate who, who fortunately, you know, I was looking for some little extra cash. I was transitioning between my summer job and being at college. And he got me a job working uh, food and beverage for a weekend for New Hampshire Highland Games, which if you haven't heard of the Highland Games or haven't been to the Highland Games, I'd encourage you to come. It's, it's quite the scene, uh, the third weekend in September every year. But uh, so I got a job just for the weekend slinging, you know, meat pies and haggis and okay. fish and chips and, and whatever. And <laughs> and that uh, that transitioned uh, into my first winter job as a lift operator. I started running lifts. East Basin particularly is where they kind of stuffed me over in the corner there. And I spent uh, I spent, well, half a season working in lift ops and uh, slowly transitioned into the terrain park role. I was kind of hanging out with those guys. It was my passion. I was spending some time in the snowcat at night with them, just kind of giving them feedback about what could be better about the parks or what I wanted to see. And, and out of the blue, they offered me a job and it was, that was uh, more up my alley than lift ops. So I kind of transitioned over into there and really haven't looked back since then. When you showed up, were you a skier or a snowboarder? Was that part of your life? Absolutely. Uh, snowboarder um, since, oh, I don't know. I've been skiing since I started skiing when I was four or five. Uh, thankfully, wow. my mother got me into it. But probably around 14 years old, I started snowboarding. Where did you grow up skiing and snowboarding? Well, I, I grew up in Nashville, New Hampshire, which if you're not familiar with the area, it's a border town, southern part of the state, you know, more or less Massachusetts. And uh, we actually used to travel south to Wachusett. My mother wow. would take us uh, I don't know that I've ever been to Wachusett during the day, but I've put my hours in there at night, and that was kind of that was kind of the 
the MO go there for night skiing. And I remember some New Year's Eves there, like real late. And, um, and then as I, as I got into some of the school programs, you know, Neshoba was, was typical in my elementary school, Pat's Peak, typical in my uh, middle school. And by the time you get to high school, you had friends that were driving or I was driving and we, we were headed north to Waterville and Loon. Had you ever worked at a ski area or was Loon your first job in skiing? Loon was my first job at a ski area for sure. And what hooked you? I mean, 21 years, it's a long time. And there's, you know, a lot of different ways that your life could have gone probably. And, and probably you had a lot of different interests and, and a lot of different visions and dreams. What was it about Loon and that resort in particular that kept you there? And was there a moment when you said, this is my place, I'm setting up shop, this is going to be what I'm going to commit my life to? Yeah. So it was, it's the area just as much as the ski culture. Um, this is a beautiful place to live. I, I, you know, I grew up in the Southern part of the state and I'm not taking anything away from that. I love my time and experiences there, but when you're up in this, in the lakes region of New Hampshire in the white mountains of New Hampshire, it's just, it truly is gorgeous year round. Uh, and I've, I spent a summer up here during college. It was a recommendation of a sports coach of mine in, in high school. And, I did it and I never looked back. So, you know, that meant I needed a job year round too. And uh, in the summers, I was working construction in the area. I spent a lot of time actually in, in Waterville Valley and Lincoln, uh, Woodstock, just doing construction jobs. And I was working in the winters at Loon and, um, it, you know, it came to a point where I needed to, I got to somewhat of a head roads where I just, you know, I needed a committed life. I didn't um, really appreciate the, I didn't know whether I had a job uh, on the construction side. I didn't know whether I was going to a site that day or not. And, and I was already working at Loon. I loved the people I was working with. I loved the opportunities they were giving me. And um, fortunately they had me come on year round and it's, it's been a wonderful experience. So take us through that experience here, Brian, you're bumping chairs at East Basin, which is a beautiful old lift, classic lift. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, but Take us through this because you don't go from bumping lifts to, uh, to to running the whole place without having an interesting story along the way. So take us through that story. Yeah, well, I, I never I never really uh, when I started, it wasn't like oh, I'm going to be the general manager someday. That wasn't necessarily on my radar. Uh, it was just it was if you can find a job that you're passionate about and and you love, you know, why not? Right. And that's, that's really what happened with me and what happens with a lot of people in the ski industry. I think it's, it's a labor of love. And as I, so as I got into the train park world, which was what I was really, really passionate about, um, that's a, that's a unique job in the sense that it's a little bit of everything, right? Like we did our own marketing, we ran our own events, you had to operate your own equipment, work on your own equipment. Yeah. If you wanted snow in a certain place, you had to help make snow. So is this really wide ranging background that comes from, from working in that world. And it, uh, it really provided me some learning opportunities and to, to grow, to learn about all the different assets or facets of a, of a ski resort. And, you know, I think the people that I've been lucky enough to be surrounded by have been really successful. They've been really successful in helping me, um, grow in my career and um, just kind of following in their footsteps and filling the voids that they've left uh, as they've moved up and on in their careers. And 
I, uh, fortunately, you know, Jay Scambio specifically is one of those people that, um, you know, he's been a, a lifelong mentor to me really. And I, I followed him, um, working corporately as the director of mountain sports operations for, you know, uh, a very short period of time, actually work, working directly for Rick Kelly and, uh, and Boyne traveling around all of the resorts and overseeing the train parks and snow sports. We did a really cool event in downtown Detroit where we made snow and, and, mm. uh, taught people how to ski, which was wonderful. Uh, winter cool. blast, I believe it was called. And, you know, I was, I was part of all of those things and I just, it was the learning curve from that job and that experience was just immense. You know, you, you learn big picture stuff. You met all, all of these different individuals, but you also learned like little things like, Oh, that's cool. How they roll up that rope at Boyne mountain or, or whatever it was, you know, and <laughs> it's just this crazy, crazy steep learning curve. And about eight months, nine months into that job, the VP of ops position came open at loon. And I remember having a conversation with uh, Rick Kelly at the time. And, and he just, he made a point to tell me that, you know, these opportunities don't, come up very often. And if you're serious about a career in the ski industry, you know, he encouraged me to apply for it. And I'm really forever, forever grateful for that because if I, if he hadn't encouraged me and, and given me the guidance there, I, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today. And, um, you know, fortunately they hired me for the job, which is, which was a big part of it. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And I, uh, you know, I did that for five years and another this general manager, position came open last April. And again, fortunate, uh, blessed to, uh, to be here. Yeah. You mentioned, it's funny. You mentioned that Jay didn't have that job for long and it's true. He, he, like you, Jay Scambio, former general manager of Loon Mountain, who's been on this podcast, came up through Loon Mountain and started there as an instructor or, or some similar entry-level job and ended up running the place. And he actually was promoted chief operating officer of Boyne's Day Resorts. Did you know that was coming, Brian? Did you expect to have this opportunity uh, or, or, or were you surprised? How, how did this opportunity come up and, 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 and how did you react when you found out that you were going to be the next general manager of Loon Mountain? So I, I don't know that I saw that coming in the time frame that I saw that coming. I took the vice president of operations role, knowing, you know, the next obvious step from there is general manager. Um, but Jay was young. He's a great manager. I, you know, I expected him to be there for 20 years. Um, but when you look at the the corporate structure and you understand that the people above him were, you know, of that age, that they were looking towards retirement. And you kind of I had this inkling like, <clears throat> you know, someone's going to retire and who's the right person for that job? Well, in my opinion, it was Jay. I mean, he's, he's a wonderful leader. He's proven himself. He's young, he's motivated. And, um, it, it wasn't as he kept it a secret for a long time that I didn't even know he had actually applied for the job. And, um, but it wasn't really a surprise when I knew the job was posted that he was going to get it. Yeah. Jay is, uh, I love the way he showed up for the podcast and his energy. And I even said at the end of the podcast, if you go back and listen to it, I said he is going to be leading this place for a long, long time. Because like you said, he's young, he's smart, he's smart, uh, you know, he has he has a good sense of what skiers want. Uh, but, you know, as you said, no surprise to see him move up. So you have the opportunity. Uh, here you are. And we'll talk about those opportunities that are ahead of you in a minute here. But I, I really want to get your perspective on this, Brian, because you've been there for so long. And as we all know, there's been a lot of shuffling 
among ski area owners and operators over these past 20 years. So when you started in 2001, Booth Creek, which was once a major operator, was running that resort. Boyne came in in 2007. And, and you know, I, I appreciate and acknowledge here that you were not in these senior leadership roles, most likely in 2007 when Boyne came over. However, sometimes that's better because you can observe it all from a remove and you're not quite as beholden to the sort of momentum of what's going on. You can kind of sit back and look at it all. Talk about that transition and and how Loon may have changed under Boyne's leadership in a positive way from Booth Creek. And and also, you know, what is Booth Creek's legacy and and how did they set the place up in a way that that Boyne could take it and continue to evolve it? Yeah. So uh, first, I, I'll, I'll think back to uh, when Booth Creek sold to Boyne or the operating rights to Boyne, to Boyne. And I was I was scared. I didn't really know what that meant or any of the you know, I didn't have a background of what Boyne was or their history at the time. And it was a little scary, like, oh, man, is this is this where I want to have my career? Is this where I still want to work? And one of the first things they did was they hired Jay on as this new corporate role because they were worried about he was going to um, travel with uh, SBT at the time and, and carry on some of that that Booth Creek tradition. Um, so for them to to make that commitment to create a job for him to oversee terrain parks, that was that was like a lightning moment for me. Like, okay, they, they get it. They're committed to what we're doing. This is a place I want to be. Um, in terms of what what Boyne has taken from Booth Creek, I like to think that it's a lot of a lot of the better things that we do. You know, we still VBOP our business really well. Our, our budgeting process comes from Booth Creek. One of the uh, every year we do a, a general manager uh, yearly presentation that that comes from the Booth Creek era. Um, so there's a lot of things that we've taken away from Booth Creek. I think what Boyne has brought to the table and people ask me this all the time. And, and this, this is my, my canned response here is that they, as a, as a, as much as of a corporate entity as they are, as much as we have, you know, corporate structure and corporate employees and these different initiatives and company goals, we really, each of the resorts really have their own DNA. We really have the right, and drive and, and and frankly are encouraged by our ownership to do what's right for us, to do what's right for our community, to do what's right for our pass holders, to do what's right for our employees and and really steer the ship locally. And I think, you know, Steven says this all the time, we're a, a company of resorts, not a resort company. And uh, and that really rings true that, that locally we're in control of our own de- destiny, but we have the support and the backing of, of a larger corporation. You know, that's so vital, Brian, because if you look at each of Boyne's resorts, they all have a different set of advantages and they all have a different set of challenges. And the, the biggest challenge I see for Loon looking here from the peanut gallery is just its location. I mean, you have so much going for you. You have this enormous vertical drop. You have this just killer intermediate terrain. You have several base areas. You have a parent company that's willing to invest. The The challenges are, and, and this is also one of your advantages, is you're right off I-93. You're a straight shot up from Boston, and you're also on the Icon Pass. So you, you have 
you're very popular is what I'm trying to say. And, and volume can be very hard to manage. I, I'm really curious for your take here because you've been able to watch this place evolve over the past 21 years. How has the way that Loon is used, the way that skiers approach and, and use the resort evolved over the decades as the Icon Pass has come online, as these faster lifts have come online, how how has that sort of magnification and, and like this having to deal with crowds, how is how is how have you adapted to that and how has the way the skiers use Loon changed over the years? Yeah, so Loon's Loon's always been a busy place for all of those reasons, right? And uh, I think back to before I was even in college up here and really had a season pass. I remember coming here and waiting and long lines and parked out in a parking lot. And um, so the, the resort's been kind of dealing with that for a long time. Uh, but everything's grown, right? Like we we expanded to South Mountain, added all the terrain there. The, the town itself has grown. I mean, bed base and, and the hotels and restaurants. I mean, everything's kind of growing with that drive of people. In terms of what more recently has changed, you know, specific to Icon or season pass sales growing or day visits growing. Uh, and something we've, you know, really learned from the pandemic, I think everyone kind of learned from the pandemic here was managing and forecasting our, our arrivals and who is at the ski resort and, and what it means to have a better experience when there's less people, you know, it was, it was a free for all pan pre pandemic, like, you know, however many parking spots we had, we filled and, you know, however many tickets that was, it was however many tickets it was. And what's really changed now is we're, we're managing that in a lot of different ways um, for all of our guests and trying to forecast and understand what that means and controlling the capacities so that we're not overrun as a ski resort, you know, something that, that I, I love about, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things to love about like big sky, right. But that destination model where, you know, they might be just as busy on a Tuesday as they are on a Saturday. They might be busier on a Tuesday because Saturday is a travel day for people to and from. And historically Loon's been just this place that's been overwhelmed on a Saturday and Sunday, but then Tuesday there's like 500 people here. And it's just, just, it, it's hard to, it's hard to staff for that. It's hard to plan for that. It's hard to budget for that. And, and what we're really trying to do, and we've got a lot of work to get there, but we're really trying to have like a consistent flow of traffic in and out of the resort. If we can hit, you know, the same number every day, seven days a week, you know, that's really an ideal situation. And I don't know that we'll ever get there because we're not the fly-in destination that a big sky is, but um, we've been really successful pushing traffic to Fridays and Mondays and even Sundays are much busier than they were before. And, and Saturdays are down in that capacity. And, um, you know, we, we owe a lot to that, of that, to the, to the pandemic and the learnings from there. Yeah, I'm really curious. There's one thing that Boyne has very deliberately done at many of its resorts, but not at Loon to try to spread out crowds and arrival times is introduce night skiing. And, and Stephen Kircher told me that uh, Boyne Resort CEO, Stephen Kircher told me that that's explicitly why they added night skiing at Sunday River. Kind of surprised given Loon's location that you haven't tried to expand the night skiing footprint there or establish a night skiing footprint there. Has that ever, is that something you've ever talked about? And if so, uh, why doesn't Loon have night skiing? 
Oh, we've talked about it. Um, I, I'll say this just from my time talking to the other operators that do it, it it's a challenge. It's a challenge on a lot of fronts. Um, I think the big thing, the big reason is that we're we're operating on forest service land and it's not as simple as just going out there to put some lights in the forest. And, and not that it's not possible. It's just a lot of work to get there. And uh, we have other goals in mind to, to handle that, tra- that increased traffic. Well, there is plenty that's going on there. And I want to talk about some of these huge projects that just seem to be happening one after the next at Loon. Let's start with Kank 8 here, Brian. This, you know, I was there for opening day and and I just can't overstate how impressive this is and just what an experience it is to ski into that building, come around the corner, go through the gates, eight wide on that conveyor, stop on the little snow beach and get scooped up by this just amazing machine the heated seats the you know the bar and the bubbles comes down it it feels like and i mean this in the best possible way it feels like you're on a ride and just standing there on the hill watching that thing go up over the rise it it looks like a a beautiful ship just sailing i i just love this thing now that you've had a year to operate under kank 8 just talk about the upgrade and how much it has changed the experience of skiing at being a loot mountain. I, you, you nailed it. Really. It, it, it is a ride. It is an experience. Uh, something that I think a lot of ski areas neglect is that so much of our guests day is not just skiing. I mean, that's why they're there, but they spend almost as much time in in your parking lots in your lodges in your rental facility in your lift lines on your lifts and to be truly successful uh, we need to focus on the entire experience so we've always focused on the snow we've always been known for good snow and and projects like the kank eight are the evolution here where we're focused on not including the snow certainly still but more than that and and what it's like to ski into that building and to see the screen and to be in those heated seats and to be in those bubbles under, you know, potentially adverse weather conditions. Like it's, it's the whole experience and it's not just a means to get you up the mountain. It's uh, it's adding to your day as a whole. So just looking at this from a practical level, when I spoke to Jay, it was February, 2020. And the hope was that Kank eight would take some pressure off the gondola which is just a four-person machine, kind of an anomaly in modern skiing, developed some pretty long lines. So there was a hope that Kank 8 would redistribute skiers around the mountain because that West Basin area has a lot of parallel trails, can suck up a lot of skiers, but they weren't necessarily always going over there. Did the Kank 8 change skier patterns around the mountain? I, the short answer, yes, absolutely. Um, and, and I know this from personal experience, you know, I have some, I have some really longtime friends that, that they've been trained park riders since I've known them. And they've always, they've always ridden the gondola. They've always done flying Fox and they've always ended up in the Loon Mountain Park. And that was like, that's their routine. Doesn't matter what time of the year, that's what they're doing. And, uh, and I see them over at the Kankate and, and that's like, that's a real sign that, you know, they're just, they're just changing it up because they've got this beautiful lift over there and they want to go. I think the big, the big hope and, and dream for us was that 
we're spreading traffic around the mountain more equally and you don't have these like large ebb and flow of like everyone's here in this base area and then everyone's skiing over to that base area and and that certainly played out with kank eight and and definitely under i mean it's new england the weather isn't always fantastic we can be honest about that and when we had those adverse conditions everyone flocked to the gondola whether it was cold or you know, this kind of sleety snow, whatever it was, like the gondola line was just insane because you, you you were in the building waiting in the line queue. You were undercover and now you've got all of that and a TV or music or whatever it is over at, over at the Kankate. So um, especially on those days, we see the traffic flow change over there. Okay, quick break. Then back to Brian and Loon. All right, I want to talk to you about a service that I use every single day in the wintertime, open snow. I live within a five hour drive of approximately 150 ski areas. And what that means is I have a lot of options. So when I plan my ski days, I want to know what's firing. Is it the Lake Erie Snowbelt, plastering Western New York? Do I need to head up to the Tug Hill Plateau? Are the Catskills hot? or the resorts along the Green Mountain Spine in Vermont, or the Whites, or the Presidentials, or is a Southern Storm plastering Pennsylvania and Virginia? It's more than I can sort through myself, frankly, and that's why I use Open Snow. Outlooks from multiple weather forecasting models, hourly forecasts, mountain cams, and resort-by-resort snow forecasts. Yes, they are now a partner, but I have used Open Snow for years, and now you can too. Test drive Open Snow's best features with a free 60-day trial, including 10-day snow forecasts for your favorite ski resorts, high-resolution weather maps, expert analysis, and much more by visiting opensnow.com/stormskiing. That's opensnow.com/stormskiing. You know, I was there on a Friday when it opened and I did not get a chance to get back. But what, what it seemed like to me was that that lift queue was just eaten alive by the lift. And it was very hard for lines to really even form. What was your experience going through the season? Did you ever see substantial wait times at Kankade? What was the longest wait times you think you saw last year? Uh, so we don't we we have RFID, so we track the people that are coming through there in terms of volume. Uh, we don't have a great way of saying someone stood in the lift line for you know twenty minutes, other than going out there and picking the guy in the yellow jacket and counting how long, which we did, and uh, and we had done that before. So as analytical as that can be, it, it was better than half. We cut the lift line down nice. um, running that lift, and and the really cool thing and it. It's different in the terms of not just the way the lift operates, but the way the the line and the queuing is. It's it's very European where it's kind of like everyone's moving forward at once. There isn't this like systematic front row where all these people move forward and then they get organized. It's very just like you're constantly moving and the lift is just chewing you up and getting you up the mountain. And so you're engaged the whole time. You're not just sitting there like kind of shivering, being cold, waiting for your name to be called. Um, it, it's, it's a different experience through all the way through. So Kanke did have some intermittent power issues last year. What was going on there, Brian? And are those issues resolved? It's a, that's a, that's a, a funny, a funny thing. So, and it's funny how rumors start. 
The kank never had any power issues. And I'll tell you this funny story. So we had this this guest come to us and say, how come how come East Basin isn't running? I heard it's because, you know, the kank's using so much power and it's and, and that's just simply not how it works. So it's funny how those those rumors get spread. Um, I'll be the first to admit the kank did have some problems. Not all of them were related to a new chairlift, right? Like, for example, we got a 99 mile an hour northeast wind, uh, a blowing snow wind during one of those storms. That lift, the bottom terminal isn't enclosed because it's in a building. It doesn't need to be enclosed. And when we designed the building, the engineers required it to have some ventilation up under the eaves. Who would have thought that blowing snow would have blown through that ventilation <laughs> over 50 feet onto the bull wheel and ice it up? That caused us problems for, for two days. Um, and, and that's just one of those things that you, you couldn't necessarily anticipate that caused problems with us. We had a similar problem with snowmaking. Um, some poor communication on our team's part with Doppelmeyer doing some work at night. And uh, we overloaded some of the bubbles with, with snow and the, the cables were snapping as they were coming back down and into the terminal. And it took us half a day to sort that out, beat the ice off, figure out what happened. So we had a lot of those little problems that were just somewhat, you know, the, the snowmaking one may have been a little more in, in our control, but just out of our control. But we also had some some lift related issues. For example, uh, we had an, an Ethernet cord failure and we kept getting these these trips and we didn't know what it was. And it finally became a, a, a big enough problem that we had to we had to figure it out. So fortunately, you know, we can call Doppelmeyer. Doppelmeyer logs in remotely and diagnoses the system and says, hey, listen, it's, it's one of these two cords. Go to your IT team, get this new 45 cent Ethernet cord, plug it in. <laughs> boom, it works again. But that takes, you know, that's even with that technology and with Wolfert being online and being able to log in the machine, it still takes time. So um, and then and then it, it blows up because that's the only lift out of the base area. So I thought that you were able to store those carriers every night in the barn to avoid those sort of uh, snow accumulation, ice accumulation events. Yes, and they've spent uh, they've spent three nights in their life outside twice for a movie night this summer, and and that was one night, and it, and they weren't out all night. It was Doppelmeyer was there late doing some upgrades and system upgrades, so the chairs needed to be online, and we didn't communicate with them that we were trying to make snow on the trail underneath there. And again, just an example of uh, better communication we we could have had, and and wouldn't have ever had those problems. Uh, Murphy's law. All right, well. I appreciate you correcting the record there. How happy are you with Kankate overall one year in? I couldn't be more happy. I mean, I think from a winter perspective, it leaps and bounds ahead of what was there in terms of traffic and getting people out of that base area. Uh, something I, I probably should have mentioned earlier on the summer side, because we're operating that lift during the summer for mountain biking mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. Uh, if, if we jumped you know, three steps ahead in the winter, we jumped eight steps ahead in the summer. What that lift did for, for our bike business. And I mean, it is, it is truly unique on the, on the summer side and how, how we're moving bikes out of that base area uh, faster than ever in a, in a, in a completely seamless manner. So Kankade is really the cor a cornerstone piece of what the resort is calling Loon Flight Path 2030. And this is a 10-year plan that the resort launched in 2020. And, and I'll include a link to that in the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. But 
part of that plan, Brian, is a, quote, reimagined West Basin, end quote, which the original plan called to be in place by 2025. With the Kent Gate now operational, and I, I realized that this lift was delayed a year because it was supposed to go in in the summer of 2020 and ended up going in in the summer of 2021 through no fault of the resorts. With the lift now in place, what can you tell us about what a reimagined West Basin would look like and when we might start to see that happen from a skiing point of view? Yeah, there's so the West Basin, it's our busiest, the Governor's Lodge base area, it's our busiest base area, something of, you know, 70% of our guests contact that base area first. It's why we started there with the Kent Gate. It's why we're focused on this reimagined base area. There's, you know, a maintenance facility, a 17-year-old temporary rental shop, a comp center building that's already been moved once. And and all of those things are in this greater plan. I think the the keystone outside of Kent Gate there is, is a new lodge. It's not a secret. We've been working on it for two years. We're, we're getting closer in the planning stages, and it's going to be this big, wonderful new facility that has, you know, a, a dedicated purpose-built rental shop, you know, a completely new uh, guest service and arrival, restaurants, bars, function space, you know, the, the, the efficient engine for our food and beverage team that we don't have right now, and some kind of stuff in the back of the house too, like recycling, centers and and uh, employee spaces and some stuff like that all with you know our sustainability goals from the forever project in mind so does governor adams come down in that scenario and you replace it like killington's doing with k1 where they just demolished it they're building a whole new big one or would this be an expansion of that lodge you have at governor adams Right now, this is this is next to the Governor Adams Lodge, and and the purpose there is that no one can build us a new lodge in four months, as much as we would like to see that happen. <laughs> uh, so we have to remove some other buildings, you know, the, the comp center, the rental shop, and find temporary solutions for those, so we can go through that twenty month build process of a new lodge, and then and then what happens with the existing Governor Adams Lodge is it's still a little bit out there, and and. Uh, you know, we have some stuff on paper, but we're not ready to commit to it yet. All right, let's jump across the mountain here, Brian. Talk about Seven Brothers. Big project this summer. I imagine this has got a lot of your attention and time over the past several months. Tell us about the Seven Brothers lift, what you're taking out, and what is going in its place. So we're taking out an old fixed grip triple. Um, it had a had a loading conveyor to try to increase the, the capacity up the mountain because it's a busy lift, especially with the gondola. Um, you know, as much as the gondola is highly utilized and, you know, fills every cabin almost every time, it's still only a thousand PPH getting people out of that base area. So that Seven Brothers lift has always been critical. One of the uh, one of the questions we got when we released the Kank 8 plans was, you know, a pretty common question was, well, why are why are you starting there? And why like that lifts perfectly good. It operates well and there's no problems with it. Like, why are you getting rid of it? And And we couldn't say it at the time, but because that was that was the piece that was getting plugged in on the other base area. So, um, yeah, that that lift means a ton to us. It means a lot to our guests in that base area for the weather redundancy. You know, the gondola is largely affected by the weather at times. And, you know, there's that lift accesses our train parks, our seasonal programs all use it. Um, our disabled programs that are here use that lift. So it's uh it's a big piece to move the old Kank quad over into that zone. And uh, I think that 
what we've done with the lift, what Doppelmeyer has done is really going to transform, you know, this, the, the next base area we're focused on here. So talk about what Doppelmeyer has done. Stephen Kirster hits this point with me all the time, but I, I really don't think that the guests fully appreciate because when you say you move the Kent quad over to seven brothers, they're like, well, they just took the lift and moved it. But it's not that simple, right? Talk about that process of what you actually did in that year in between when when the Kent quad was not running. Yeah, it, it it's it's a new lift. I mean, we're we're <laughs> underselling ourselves when we say we just moved this lift over here. Um, all of the movable parts got replaced. Most of the lift that was getting reused went to St. Jerome Doppelmeyer's uh, facilities in Canada and was rebuilt. You know, all the paint was stripped off. All the bearings were replaced. It's got a new drive. It's got new motors. It's got new systems. I think the only like really, you know, the, the towers were all reused, but they were they were sandblasted, stripped, galvanized, rebuilt. All the line gear was re. I mean, it's it's a new lift, new terminal skins, everything. I think the only thing that we uh, it's like truly original is is the chairs themselves, you know, so it's a it's a completely new lift. You won't recognize it. It's going to look just like the Kank 8 with the blue and the orange and the gray. And it's really going to pop and whole new parking system and everything. So re- really a new lift. It's it's, uh, you know, uh, steel really is all that that remained. Yeah, so this is not a matter of just getting another 10 years out of this lift. I mean, you reset this thing for the next 35, 40 years. There is a little bit of, I would imagine that there were some modifications that had to take place just in the fact that the Kank line is about a thousand feet longer than the Seven Brothers line. Maybe that's no big deal. I don't really know. But talk about the process of downsizing a lift and what goes into that and if there's any challenges associated with taking a lift and making it shorter. Yeah. making it shorter is certainly easier than making, making it longer. I mean, it needed a new <laughs> rope anyway, so that wasn't necessarily part of it. I, the big piece is the horsepower and uh, what the lift was designed to handle and having lower elevation, lower capacity certainly means that you're there already. Uh, I'll give Doppelmeyer a lot of the credit on this because, you know, I'm, I'm not an engineer, but for loons, for loons purposes, we went out there and said, this is where we wanted to start. This is where we want to land. We don't want a tower here, here, and here because there's bike trails or some other impact on the ground and see if you can take all those parts and make this work. And, and they were able to, I think maybe tower one got replaced with new steel just because it's kind of steep coming up out of the base. There as a longer terminal. So we had a little bit of a cut at the bottom, but other than that, I mean, Doppelmeyer did everything and um, you know, they, they took a, uh, they took all the parts and pieces and made, made it work. You know, from the trail map and the new trail map is out now at, uh, on your website, it looks as though this takes loads and lands in the same place as the seven brothers triple. Is that the case? Or did you make some slight modifications? Um, in terms of up and down the mountain, uh, the, the top terminal is in the exact same location. It's like eight feet to the east, just because we we're trying to, uh, make the unload experience up there a little better. Uh, the bottom terminal, uh, the bull wheel moved up the mountain just again. Uh, it's a longer terminal, so we needed more space. For all intensive purposes, it's it's leaving and going to the same place. Where did the triple chairs go? Did you auction those off? And if so, was there a, an organization that benefited from those proceeds? 
Yeah, so we we actually sold that whole chair chair lift to an entity in Canada who asked not to be named, so I won't go there. Um, but they only needed some of the parts and pieces; they didn't need all of the chairs. So the remaining chairs that we had, we we offered to them to our employees. Uh, you know, everyone wants a piece piece of the resort at their home. I know I bought one myself and put it in my backyard for my son and wife to swing on, um, and then the rest of them were were sold at auction to benefit a local charity in, in town here, the Friends of Lincoln Woodstock Recreation. And uh, it, it was a pretty hefty check. We wrote them and I know they'll put it to good use. So so looking at the trail map, if you're not familiar with Loon Mountain, you may be wondering right now, well, why is this lift so important? It only goes halfway up the mountain. It doesn't serve that many trails, but really that is a very important lift. And, and it gets to your origins in the parks and your passion. So talk about the importance of the Seven Brothers lift and the terrain that it serves and why that's so vital to Loon. Yeah, I mean, I, I hit on it a little bit there, but the the gondola is this critical lift out of that base area, but it's, it's affected by the weather and it's restricted in terms of how many people can move. So Seven Brothers has always been a popular lift um, and, and it's needed for those reasons. It's direct connection to the terrain park, certainly something I'm uh, I'm a little partial to. I mean, that, that pod of skiing there is historically where we've had most of our terrain parks. And those users don't always want to go ski the rest of the mountain. They want to get right into the parks. They want to get the most bang for their buck and go directly to the top of the park. So that lift is, is serving that. But a, a big piece, I think, for us is that our seasonal programs, our 400 kids that are there in our seasonal program over the weekend are based right next to that lift. And that is their primary mover. That's how they're getting the most out of their day with our coaches and in that program and getting them up the mountain and, and back to lunch and then back up the mountain again. And so it's a, it's a critical piece. So how much are you increasing capacity? Because this is uh, you're going from a fixed trip triple to a high speed quad. I don't know if you're maximizing this with the number of carriers on there, but how much are you bumping up capacity on this lift? So the, the speed more than doubled. Um, the carriers, um, well, the, the, when you get an extra seat, you don't need as many carriers. So there weren't as many carriers as there were uh, in the new installation. Trip time is about cut in half. Uh, PPH, you know, you're almost double in terms of what can go up the mountain. What I would say, though, this whenever you talk about that, you're talking about a, a paper design and the reality isn't actually that, right? Especially with that fixed grip triple, like people couldn't get out of the way of the chair fast enough. We had to use the loading <laughs> conveyor at the bottom. So you had all these slows and stops and starts and and having the detachable lift is going to solve all of that. So even though the capacity wasn't quite double, I bet in reality, it is more than double. <laughs> so how pumped are your park skiers to be getting a high speed lift there? I think they're thrilled. I think they're uh, they're going to use that lift like they've never used it before. You know, uh, Boynton Resorts, as I mentioned, has 10 resorts across the continent. Brighton and Loon are really kind of the main parks resorts, at least from my understanding. And Loon has one of the best terrain parks. I put it up there with Mount Snow in the east. And I'm sure you would say it's better than Mount Snows. But talk about the importance of that parks culture to Loon and how vital it is that you continue to invest in that area, evolve that area, and give the best park experience for any resort within the orbit of Boston. 
Yeah, this is something that we we did take away from the Booth Creek days. Their their focus on the youth market was uh, world renowned, and and we've held on to that. A big piece of that is the terrain parks. I mean, we look at it as if you know the the youth market guest of today, that seventeen year old kid who's out free skiing in the terrain park or snowboarding in the terrain park. They're the guy that's going to bring their family here for the next forty or fifty years, and and we're. Uh, we're trying to get them to be committed and to be a, a, a loon skier for the rest of their life. And that means we have to provide these things that they want. And and we're committed to it. We do a good job at it. Uh, I like to think we're better than Mount Snow, but that's my personal opinion. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're, we're committed to to and to seeing all of our to give all of our guests what they really want. And there's a large segment of segment of people that that expect that from us and we're going to provide it. So let's stay on the subject of lifts here, Brian, and jump across the mountain again, this time to South Peak and the Lincoln Peak Express. So this is an interesting one because Lincoln Express is only 15 years old. You opened that expansion in 2007, just setting this up for the listeners here. So that lift is uh, is is pretty new and modern. Nonetheless, the Flight Path 2030 calls for an upgrade to Lincoln Peak Express Quad by 2025. Do you have a sense of when we could get more details on what may be going on Lincoln Peak? Yeah, we're not ready to commit publicly to that. Um, as you mentioned earlier, some of our plans got delayed uh, a year with with the pandemic. Um, what I what I can say publicly, um, because I believe this to be true no matter what, is that that pod of skiing is is going to be the lifeblood of the resort as we move forward. There's going to be a lot more people skiing over there. There's going to be a lot more people interacting, starting their day and ending their day over there. And and with that is going to come a new lift and new facilities and everything that goes along with it. Yeah, we'll get into South Peak a lot more later in the expansion you have coming online next year. Just to finish off our conversation on lifts, Flight Path 2030 also called for long term by 2030 upgrades, both to this gondola that we've been discussing and the North Peak lift, which is a high-speed quad. Um, you know, Obviously, it's too early for you to be able to talk about those in any detail, but one of the headlines of the 2030 plan from the ski experience is to develop, quote, the most technologically advanced lift network in the East to increase uphill speed and achieve ultimate comfort, end quote. Just talk a little bit more here, Brian, about what that means and what you're trying to achieve with these lift upgrades as you replace them one by one across the mountain. Yeah, I, I touched on it earlier, but we, we fully understand that our skiers spend time hanging in the air. They spend time in lift lines and we want to make that experience start to finish of their day um, as exciting and, and, and have them be as engaged as they can throughout the entire day. And part of that means, you know, investing in lifts. It's a large investment. It's not something that happens overnight. Um, but you know, we, we realize that they spend a good part of their day there and we want to be just as invested there as, as we do uh, out on the ski slopes. And, and along with that, um, it comes with, you know, higher efficiencies, more, um, more redundancy, less worry about lift problems. We have a lot of, uh, a lot to look forward to in, in, in having this technological lift imp- implementation. Um, you know, one of the things our, our marketing team says often is that, you know, a, 
every lift is the same in the terms that it gets you from point A to point B. It's, it's how you're getting there, right? It's, it's the difference between a, a BMW and a Fiat, you know, which one, if you had a choice, which one are you going to sit in? And, and we want to be the BMW. We want that experience to be there from, from top to bottom and from bottom to top. So curious here, peppered throughout this very high speed lift fleet, you have some old fixed grip doubles. You have kissing cousins at the base. Uh, you have little sister, which I believe mostly serves uh, your tubing. And then you have the East Basin double, this 1968 hall, classic machine, beautiful machine, reliable machine, but you know, 54 year old machine. So thinking long term, do you have any desire to replace East Basin or upgrade it? Or, or is it just sort of this redundant lift, the only run on holidays? It works fine. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, there's no urgency to replace it and no intention to like, where, where you, where, where you, where's your head at with East Basin? Well, I'll start by saying I'm, I'm particularly partial to that lift because it's where I got started. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I, I'd like to think it's going to be there for a little bit, or maybe it'll end up in my backyard next to this other <laughs> triple chair I have. Um, I, you know, a large, the, the East Basin lift, it is what you said it is. It's, it's a high volume, um, outlet for on those busy days. It's the redundancy to get to Gondola Summit on a uh, on a wind affected day. Uh, I, what it means in the future, it, it largely depends on what happens with the gondola and how we can mitigate some of the problems that the gondola has in terms of how it's affected by weather. So I think if we could mitigate some of those some of those issues, we wouldn't necessarily need need the redundancy, and we certainly wouldn't need the capacity if we're able to increase those. So, um, uh, up in the air right now, but uh, on our mind certainly. All right, let's jump back to South Peak and this expansion that Loon announced last week. This is a really cool little pod, and it's statistically it's not something that is going to necessarily change the whole game at Loon, but it's very strategically important. So talk about this expansion, what we're going to see over there, what kind of lift, what kind of trails, how much terrain, and what is your timeline? Um, all great questions. The, uh, the, that pod of skiing over there is, if you could, and I was telling someone this the other day, if you could just like look at a contour map and drop a pin and say, this is where the best beginner terrain is. This is where the best chance of me learning how to ski is. That is it. And, and it's been in our master development plan. It's been something we've been trying to get towards. It was, you know, originally conceived in 2000 or originally submitted to the forest service conceived long before that, um, in 2013. And, uh, we're, we're happy to be getting there right now. It's uh, 30 acres, 30 plus acres of skiing. Uh, I know from listening to the podcast with you here that uh, some mm-hmm. glade skiing in there, which I know you'll be excited <laughs> about. Um, it's got a it's got a fixed grip uh, quad chairlift. It's leaving out of the out of the base area. It's going to do about eighteen hundred about eighteen hundred pph, uh, which is about a six minute um, up the mountain lift time. And, uh, and what's, what's really cool and unique, I think, in, in a lot of ways is that we announced this project two weeks ago, like you said, and, um, I hope to be cutting trees in another two weeks. And that, that doesn't happen very often. The fact that we can commit and move on something so, so fast. So, uh, by the time, by this time next year, we'll have a new lift and at least some of the trails and snowmaking installed. And so winter 23, 24, we'll be skiing over there. 
there's so many things that are interesting and important about this expansion. I want to start with the fact that you actually now have this lift, this quad chair, and I believe it's a carpet loader coming out of the escape route parking lot. And, and just to set this up for the listeners, you have these massive parking lots over at escape route. And I don't know how many cars they hold, but hundreds and there's no lift up. So you park there and there's a rundown called escape route and you can ski down at the end of the day. But right now you have to park there, uh, load up all your stuff and your kids and your backpacks and, and you have to get on the shuttle bus and go to a base area to start your ski day. Just talk about from an experiential point of view, Ryan, how important is that putting yourself in the Northeast skiers mindset to just walk from your car to the lift to start your day? So we've, we've put a lot of time and effort into various projects around here. This particular project means so much to me and so much to our guests, even though they may not know it yet. And, and you hit the nail on the head there. There's, you know, upwards of 600 parking spots over there that are quote offsite parking. And next year there will be no more offsite parking at Loon. Everything will be on site. I have spent countless hours of parking cars down there myself, loading people onto buses, trying to explain to them that, no, you don't want to walk to Pemi Base Camp. I know it's a 20 minute line to get on the bus or, or whatever it is that day, but you, you don't want, where's the lift? Well, there is no, li you know, all those questions. And we're going to solve all of that this, this coming summer and for 2023 just really transform the arrival experience for such a large, large piece of our guests. And, and it's right in town. I mean, this isn't just about those parking spots, right? Like all of those condos, all of those hotels, I was talking to a Riverside Terrace owner. It's one of the condos. It's right there. And he, he was talking to me for 30 minutes about how excited he was. He was going to have this lift in his backyard. And now he wasn't going to need to drive to the resort and he was going to be able to get right on this lift and get skiing. And this means a lot to a lot of people. Will you still run those shuttle buses? Well, yeah, I mean, we're going to we're we're committed to the to shuttle buses around town. I think what this does is we reallocate those shuttles. We're still going to, you know, you, if you need a pair of rental skis, right, in the short term anyway, you're still going to need to get on the bus because you don't have your skis. You got to get to the rental shop, right? So there's still going to be shuttle buses there. Are there going to be the dedicated, you know, four to eight buses on a busy day down there? No, but those four to eight buses might be picking up someone in town at the Holiday Inn or the Comfort Inn that, you know, we're currently not operating a shuttle bus at. So uh, thus helping some of the parking and congestion in town and traffic issues. And so um, will, will we have less shuttle buses as a whole? No, uh, but we're going to reallocate those resources so that we can uh, we can do more. So historically, Loon is... It might be the best intermediate mountain, pure intermediate mountain in the Northeast. You have some black diamonds and, and some good stuff uh, that, that, that the advanced skiers can get into. But for the most part, it's a really good top to bottom 2000 vertical foot blue mountain. This really gives you a pod of green terrain. And it also gives you this little area with the progression carpets at the bottom. Talk about how important that is. And whether this new learning area at the base will replace the learning area you have at Sarsaparilla or if it's going to complement it. Yeah, um, learning terrain is the one thing we don't have a lot of. I mean, our two, quote, learning slopes, um, one is a blasted switchback 
uh, you yeah. know, cutting back and forth, which isn't isn't ideal. The other one is the roof of our maintenance center. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you're literally <laughs> skiing over the mechanics working on the snowcats when you're over there. And <laughs> it, this has been a focus of ours for a long time. It's going to transform that experience. I think long term, um, you know, a lot of our beginner lessons, a lot of that activity is going to o- happen over there. I mean, it's purpose built for that. It's the ideal terrain for that. You know, we have to build some facilities down there and there's, there's a lot to, to get there. Um, I don't think we ever get to the point where we don't have a rental shop or lessons or learning facilities um, over in the governor's base area. I think we're always going to have that, you know, my, uh, I, my son might want to, you know, when he's older and he has kids, he might want to um, be riding in the train park with his oldest and drop his youngest at, at the uh, beginner lesson over there. So there's always going to be a need over there is that, you know, 50-50, is that 80-20 or 20-80? You know, who knows? There's a lot between now and then, but I think we're going to end up with both facilities. All right. Do you think that your main learning center will move over to South Peak? The mo- Most of the business, most of the traffic will happen over there, especially as, as that pot of skiing gets developed further and there's more condos and more bed base and all that stuff over there. Um, but it, it's not exclusive. All right, let's talk about the lift and where it lands and where it loads. So you chose an interesting terminal for it at the top. It's not quite at the top of escape route. It's there along cruiser. So you won't be able to lap escape route from this lift. And then it loads a little in from the lot. Although looking at the trail map now, it looks like there'll be a little skier drop off there. So just talk us through the line that the lift runs along and why you chose these particular load and unload points. Yeah. So, I mean, just like anyone who owns a piece of property, we're operating within our property boundaries. In this case, um, you know, it's private landowner down bottom and it's the forest service uh, about halfway up that lift line. And there's an interesting little corner of the property lines there that we, we had to avoid. Um, You know, we couldn't cross it in other words, because we would have been into a different zoned area for the forest service outside of our permit boundary. So, you know, for every, for every 10 feet, we had to move the, we wanted to move the lift lift closer to the parking at the bottom, like an ideal scenario, it landed right in the middle of those parking lots, but then we would have had to move the top of the lift, you know, the other direction an equal distance. Right. So that was kind of the best of both worlds. The old plan actually showed the 2013 plan showed two lifts that crossed over there. So you kind of had that flow out of the, out of the base area and then you had to ski down to another lift and then you could go up and and that just didn't seem practical in today's today's age and we didn't see a reason for someone to have to load two lifts to get over to south peak when they could just load one so they might have to walk a little further from the parking lot but they get that they get that time back you know tenfold by being able to ski right into into a cruiser there and, and get on with their day so i'm not sure how much you've thought about this yet you mentioned earlier loon tends to shoot for a five-month season which is really impressive, particularly in New Hampshire. Have you thought about where this new pod will fit into the terrain opening sequence in the fall? It, it seems as though, and, and I'm guilty of oversimplifying these things, but it seems as though you could spin the lift if you just had the bottom portion of cruiser with snowmaking, then you could take Lincoln Express quad up, take tote road across and, and give access to the main mountain without necessarily having the entirety of South Peak open, you would need to have cruiser open and escape route top to bottom just to get people back to the lot. But, but how much have you thought about that? Because you, you know, 
you're adding a whole new pod. This, this thing is getting kind of big and you are very reliant on snowmaking most years. So how much of you, how much thought have you given to that sequence and, and how much of the season this lift will actually be in play? We, we have thought about it. We're a long way from trying to change our, our typical opening plan here in terms of getting to that base area. What I will say with absolute certainty is that we're making the investments right now this summer to, to do exactly what you're suggesting. We're installing 77 new guns on Cruiser this summer. Next year, those guns are going to get click hydrants and we're going to be able to make snow there as soon as we want. Um, uh, to my point earlier about making the skiing worthwhile, I don't know that we would, you know, certainly in an extreme circumstance where we needed all that capacity or, or um, there's a bunch of homes or condos or something that are using that lift. Maybe we would go up that lift and just down to South mountain and, and get over. But I don't think we'd be opening the South mountain pot of skiing and, and thus that beginner area until it was, until it was worthwhile. You know, we'd want two or three trails over there so that you could, you could make a day of skiing over there. Um, but we're making those investments right now to to get there in the future. So I'm always hassling Stephen Kircher and uh, and, I, and Jay before you about the lack of relative lack of glades at Loon, as you as you alluded to earlier. In comparison to some of your sister resorts, certainly Sugarloaf has Bracket Basin, just one of the best, probably the best pure glade zone in the East, and it's never really been a priority for Loon historically. So I was really pumped to see these beginner and intermediate glades on the map. Is this indicative of, of a sort of uh, philosophy shift at Loon or, or did it just kind of, okay, you know, we're doing this new terrain. Let's send out some glades, give, give that beginner intermediate experience uh, to these folks rather than have to put them up on upper walking boss for the first experience in the trees. One of the, uh, one of the tough things about operating a ski resort is you have to be willing to acknowledge what you're doing wrong or what you can what you need to change, what your guests want. And one of those things is, is glade skiing. I don't know that what we're doing at, at South mountain uh, learning area is necessarily indicative of the overall plan. But what I, what I can say for sure is that, yeah, people like you, people like me want more of that skiing and we need to focus more on that. Um, the beginner, the beginner experience, you know, I think about where my, where, where's my six-year-old son going to go learn how to ski in the trees. You know, we have a little stash park, which is great. We have off the grid, which is kind of okay, but there's a bunch of bike trails going through there now that, you know, you need a lot of snow. So why not, why not get something going that's tied directly to the rest of the learning terrain? That was kind of our philosophy there in terms of, of long-term and, and broader operations. We're actually going to be getting rid of, rid of a glade, uh, the undercut oh, no. glade in the, uh, in the near future here, because, it's never open. It's, it's exposure is not in the best direction. It gets a lot of sunlight. There's a nasty piece of ledge in it that really makes it difficult skiing and, and we never open it. So we're going to turn that into an actual ski train, which will give you another access point back to your cars because it dumps out on cruiser. But in return for that, we have another zone of the mountain, an even bigger zone, um, not, not bracket basin big, but um, <laughs> you know we're, we're going to make up for that and some in the South Peak pod and uh, excited to get that that project looked at a little deeper. Can you tell us where that's going to be, those new glades? <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean, we're, again, we're a long way away from um, implementing on this. It is in our master development plan, so I think it's fair to talk about it because the Forest Service knows it's, it's something we're interested in doing. Um, it would be off of, boom, in between Boom Run and Twitcher, there's a big, uh, if you were coming into town and you looked up on your right and you saw 
um, you saw there's, there's a line of hardwoods and softwoods and right there, you know, kind of like bracket basin has that road that goes across and then you dump into all the glades. That's, that's more or less what we're thinking, but, you know, we've got a lot of resource, uh, management and understanding before we can really get in there and do that, but it's on our radar. So that's a pretty big triangle terrain. If you're also talking about extending it down to where Jabba runs. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's, that's really exciting. I love it. All right. Let's step back here for a minute, Brian. I mean, the three projects we just talked about, Kank 8, Seven Brothers, whole expansion going in on South Peak. That's three huge projects in three years. You know, I say this all the time. New Hampshire is, is tough because you don't have one big dominant resort. This isn't like Maine where you have Sugarloaf, Sunday River, and everyone else. This isn't Vermont where you have a bunch of really big resorts. This is, you know, you have a bunch of 200 to 400 acre mountains and they're all kind of the same size and they all, and they all have, um, you know, their own unique character, but you're all competing pretty much for the same market with these folks flowing up 93 from Boston. Loon is really setting itself apart with this really aggressive investment. Just talk about these investments as a whole and what it says about the direction of Loon and how you're trying to evolve this place into the future. Yeah, we've been we've been busy, um, busy not just in the past and what we're doing now, but busy planning for the future as well. It's exciting, it's uh, challenging at times, but thankfully we have we have a really amazing team. We've chosen to work with some really amazing partners that uh, that are making it happen on the ground. So um, that's that's all wonderful. In terms of what it means to Loon and what it means in New Hampshire, you know. We've always been known as the place that has great snow, especially after challenging conditions. We we like to think we're one of the best in guest service, and and we're just it, this is a commitment across the board to to grow, to um, bring more skiers to town as the town develops, to to really just showcase what we have to offer, to showcase our location, to showcase the the greater company here and and the terrain that we have, and um, it, it's it's exciting. It's a, it's a wonderful time to be a skier at Loon. It's a wonderful time to be a skier in in the ski industry as a whole. Um, but yeah, we're, we're excited about it. And, and I know our guests are as well. I mean, flight path 2030 really lays out a lot of possibilities to the suggest that this is just the beginning of the evolution. A couple more expansions that it discusses in flight path 2030 is one is, is something called the the Westward Trail expansion, and, and I apologize to the Loon locals. I I really don't know what that is. What what is what is that, Ryan? Yeah. So our, our master development plan. You know, everyone that operates on Forest Service has has these plans, and it's it, it predates even my time at Loon um, from when it was when it was conceived here. But there's there is so much more skiing. I mean, there's skiing over in the North Peak Pod. There's what we're developing this. Uh, this next summer. Um, and there's more skiing beyond our current permit boundary. We're a long way away from that. You know, the forest service, just like any town has these zones and these lines, and we're restricted to what, what we're able to operate in. And there's a possibility in the future that, that, that the next land to our West, um, could become part of our permit boundary. And, and we could have, you know, another two, 300 acres of skiing over there. Uh, again, we're a long way away from that right now. We're, 
we're very focused on what the projects we have in front of us and making sure we see those through and, and, and also making sure we're not neglecting any of our existing facilities as well. You know, like we don't want to just keep marching forward and forget about the old stuff. So um, we've got a lot on our plate right now, but that's, that's very much what we're referring to. Flight Path 2030 also mentions a potential North Peak trail expansion. When I spoke to Jay Scambio on the podcast, he the way he laid this out, it was all trails within the existing footprint. So it was more about developing what was already there rather than expanding that boundary. Is that still two and a half years later? Is that still the thinking around a potential expansion into North Peak? Yeah, everything that's planned over there is within our boundary. The uh, the stuff to further to our east is is a more or less a no go zone. It's a, it's a different type of zoning in the forest land, and it's just not permitted for for ski area expansion. So um, I can't see. I mean, you can't rule anything out, but I can't see at least in my tenure um, the opportunity to move outside of that boundary. But there is plenty of opportunity, and part of our master development plan: some more glades, some more ski trails. Uh, within the existing footprint over there. Do you have any sense of timing on any of that? Um, it, a lot of a lot of what's been going on has been tied to this kind of like elephant in the room. We didn't know what was going on with South Mountain. It was it was kind of left out of our original 2030 plans because of the the private land ownership. I mean, we don't own the land at the base area over there, and. Um, it, not knowing what the land, the old landowner had intents for and um, whether or not we were going to commit to that was, was kind of like this, this linchpin. And we didn't, you know, the, the pin's been pulled. So now we're focused over there, right? Like we're, we're working right. on that. So that certainly delays some of the, the initial timing on North Peak or some other projects because we can only focus on so many things at, at one time. Um, so no, I, I don't have a timeline. I mean, it's, it's on our radar. Um, we have the bandwidth we have, and we're, we're focused on what we can be right now. And, and that's, uh, that's next, I think. So this is a little bit of an off the wall question and it's more looking back than forward. Why doesn't the Lincoln peak express go to the summit of South peak? That's a great question that I'm not, not sure of the answer to. I, I believe that the, the permit boundaries at the top are like right beyond the top of the lift. And then if you look to the right, which is what I think you're referring to, the looker's right, um, the peak up there, um, I'm, not, I'm not certain why we didn't go over there. I imagine it has to do with the, the main drainage that separates. Um, if you're skiing down cruiser and you look to your left, there's a pretty significant drainage in there that uh that had we gone to that peak we would have been navigating back and forth over as as you were trying to ski off of that terrain is the top of south peak is that forest service land is that private land can people skin that and do they uh everything you know i'm going to generalize here and say that like 300 yards up the mountain is all forest service land now we have an operating permit on what we operate on beyond that permit is, is a different type of forest service land. And this is free for people to use at will uh, in terms of, of skinning and skiing over there. I mean, we manage our property. We have the right to do so. It's, it's more around safety. We don't want someone skinning in a place. There's a winch cable, for example. So um, managing that the time and places that they're able to do that, just keep everyone, everyone safe. I don't know that there's uh, 
I don't know that there's any skiing back there, but I'm not saying there isn't either. So <laughs> guess you'll just have to find out for yourself. Yeah. Anyone who's listening to this. All right, let's talk about snowmaking here. Boyne is so super focused on snowmaking lifts, get all the headlines because they're, they're something that tangibly skiers use every single day. But uh, in, in reality, without strong snowmaking, you don't have anything to ski down on when you get to the top of the lift. So the snowmaking system at Loon is just unbelievable. I, I, I Just talk about this system. Just lay it out for us, the snowmaking firepower you have and how you continue to evolve and upgrade this system. Yeah, we... For a long time, we've been very focused and I, I'm personally, you know, Loon, Loon skiers, Loon's employees today are personally reaping the benefits of what Rick and Jay started all those years ago and, and making that investment and having a system that is sized to be 100% open before Christmas under any under any circumstances. And I know you've talked to Stephen Kircher about this and um, Boyne's history in snowmaking and, and his absolute and total commitment to eliminating boilerplate and having the best ski surface that we possibly can. And, and I'll be the first to admit it's challenging in new England at times. Last year, it was wonderful skiing year round. It was, it was great. We didn't have any, I mean, it was cold, but we didn't have any major, uh, major side effects come our way. Um, but what our current invest our investments are is, really taking that that physical plant that we built out all of those years ago and it can grow a little bit and it will grow a little bit as we uh as we develop more terrain but what we're what we're truly focused on now is 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 maximizing the efficiency and that's what all of these click hydrants and fully automated uh fan guns and fully fully automated click hydrants that we're installing this summer on seven brothers so we're, we're focused on eliminating that ramp up curve and that ramp down curve and being able to just, you know, if, if you've got a 10 hour window, we want to be able to make snow for nine hours and 45 minutes of that, you know, and that's, that's what our current investments is focused on. And, you know, the, this South peak pod that we're working on this learning area, this is like our first, you know, we're, our snowmaking teams like giddy over it. This is our first design build We've been working with some old infrastructure and trying to like move pipe and put hydrants where we want them. And this is this is a real opportunity for us to like showcase everything we've learned and build this like ultimate system as it goes into place. And um, I, I think our uh, I think our skiers and I know our team is are, are going to be excited about it. So I hosted Pat's Peak General Manager Chris Blomback on the podcast not too long ago, and. They're also in New Hampshire, but have a more challenging climate in that they're farther south, have less elevation, have a lot working against them. His goal, and he's been working toward this for 30 years, is to be able to go, and this is what he told me, from nothing open to everything open in 48 hours. Now, granted, smaller mountain, but as you look long-term at Loon, and I know you just said you want to be open by Christmas, but what's your goal as far as being able to turn on everything at once. And I guess the, the logical question is, how does that relate to your water supply? Is is your ability to pump out snow a technology problem? Is it a water problem? Is it a mix of both? Where would you like to get to? And what are the challenges that you face as you try to get to that place? Yeah, I mean, like I said, we want to be 100% open for Christmas, which, you know, in a given year, let's say that's five weeks of snowmaking, six in a good year. Um, and that's not seven days a week in, in the climate that we're in, right? So 
and we've got we've got a lot of terrain that we need to cover. Um, you know, we're we're moving almost ten thousand gallons a minute. We have some opportunities to uh, to increase that slightly. We are limited in what we can take um, in terms of water from from our existing sources. Uh, for example, we mitigated that by um, buying rights from a pond in town, and there's opportunities to do more of that stuff or to build, you know, like what Mount Snow did and build build a big uh, snowmaking pond stuff like that. Um, uh, I, I did listen to Chris's podcast, and Chris is a, a wonderful wonderful guy. Um, I, I don't know that Loon could ever imagine opening the ski resort <laughs> like that in 48 hours, just because it's a ton of terrain. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not something we should shoot for. I think aside from water, it's, it's staff, right? Like, I, geez, it's mind boggling to think how many snowmakers you would need in the current environment to make snow over the entire mountain, right? That, that's just crazy to me. But as we move towards this semi-auto and full auto, the dependence on that physical labor certainly decreases. Um, I think there's always a place for a good snowmaker, right? Like even full auto, you got to keep an eye on it. You want to know what the snow quality is, product testing, of course. Um, but <laughs> I think there's I, I, there's always a, there's always a place for the snowmaking team. But you know that that limited resource is is very much one of our pinch points right now. Okay, last topic today, Brian. Let's talk about the Icon Pass. Loon will require reservations for Icon Pass holders. So if you're listening to this and you have an Icon Pass, keep that in mind. Of Boyne's three New England resorts, this is the only one that's requiring reservations. Some of your sister resorts out west, Brighton, Big Sky, Summit of Snoqualmie will also require reservations. Why did Loon make that decision? Well, unlike uh, unlike Sunday River, that's just this massive plot of land. You know, we're we're operating on a smaller piece of property, and you know, we're um, quote selling out every weekend, right? Like, and and to to us, that term, you know, we're not necessarily sold. Well, we are sold out because of what we're selling tickets, but it, it's it's related to parking. That's kind of our pinch point, and we only have what we have for parking, and we can't um, we can't expand beyond that. Uh, I'd I'd like to start by saying, you know, Altera, Icon, been an incredible partner of ours. Um, It's been worthwhile for them. It's been worthwhile for us as a company. And in many respects, an Icon pass holder is a season pass holder at Loon. It it may not be the the platinum pass holder, but it's a season pass of some sort. And we want to make sure that they're they're having a great experience, just like the day ticket user, just like the, the gold pass user. So, um, part of part of that experience, and I hit on it earlier, was that we're trying to manage those inventory levels, right? We're trying to manage how many people are here on a given weekend. And the more information we get back from our customers in terms of being able to manage that, the better we can manage it, right? So when we put tickets out in the marketplace for sale, we're, we're kind of looking at the forecast. We're seeing, is it going to snow? All right. So Let's let's not sell as many tickets because we know the season pass holders are going to come in hordes this weekend because it's snowing and we're trying to we're trying to meet those numbers and meet that guest expectation and and having the data from um, icon reservations is going to allow us to do that. It's not a set number. I mean, there's a number in there today, right? But it's 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 a variable number. I can go change it tomorrow if we want, so we can look at what we have available open for terrain and 
what the weather is going to do and what we expect our season pass holders to do and adjust those numbers just like we can for for our day ticket sales. And it's just it's it's an extra piece of data that, you know, it, it may be an extra hurdle for an ICOM pass holder right now. But uh, it, in the long run, they're going to have a better experience because, you know, they're going to have a parking spot. They're not going to wait in as long of a lift line. And, um, you know, it's it's the data piece that we're trying to analyze and, and plan uh, a better experience for everyone. How often have you actually reached the limit or, or, you know, quote unquote, sold out of Icon Pass reservations? And how soon, if someone's listening to this and they're planning on skiing, you know, a weekend in February, should they go make that reservation right now? So we did this during during uh, the pandemic, uh, 2021 winter. Um, it, we didn't, we didn't. I don't know exactly how many, but it wasn't often that we reached that, that limitation. Um, what I would say is that if you're planning to come on one of those crazy weekends, one of those busy weekends, you know, the, the sooner you book in advance that just like someone trying to buy a day ticket, right. The sooner, the better. Um, but I would encourage people not to just, not to just book to book. Um, and, and it's really, <clears throat> it's, it's kind of surprising that it's not, you know, Martin Luther King weekend. It's not, you know, February break that are those crazy sellout periods because a lot of our past structure is restricted. A lot of some of Icon's past structure is restricted on those holiday periods. So those aren't always like the crazy busy day that you, you think of. It's like the first weekend after that or the weekend before that when it's like, okay, all the passes are back open and everyone's going to come. Those are the days when, um, you know, if you're if you're planning to ski the weekend after MLK weekend, like maybe maybe book a little further in advance. <laughs> you never know when that powder day is going to come. Yeah. All right, Brian, I, I with that, I will let you get back to your day. I really appreciate your time, especially given everything that you're doing. It's now November recording this on November 1st. And you will we will be skiing at Loon this month one way or the other, most likely. So thank you very much for your time. And I wish you a very good winter. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. I appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we get to see you skiing up here this month. That's Brian Norton, president and general manager of Loon Mountain, New Hampshire. That was really impressive. Both what Loon is doing and the guy who was running the joint, Jay Scambio, was just a fantastic leader for that ski area. And Brian appears to be picking up that legacy seamlessly. You're in good shape, Loon skiers. Point is obviously invested in making that place special long term. Thank you very much for that, Brian. And thank you all for listening. The queue is getting pretty full and I need to start cranking these things out. I already have episodes recorded with Sundance General Manager Chad Leinbaugh and more Boyne as the company's CEO, Stephen Kircher, makes his third appearance on the Storm Skiing Podcast. You'll be hearing both of those very soon along with episodes from Beth Howard, Chief Operating Officer of Vail Mountain, and Joel Gratz, founder of Open Snow, and many more. New Hampshire skiers, you will be happy to hear that I recently locked in another in-state podcast with the general manager of Dartmouth Skiway. Lots, lots more lined up as well, and we already have pods booked into next June. Heavy hitters in there, including the leaders of Palisades Tahoe, Whitefish, Heavenly, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, Whistler Blackhome, Stevens Pass, and more. 
please remember to visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. The podcast is part of the newsletter and new pods appear there hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.